Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Good morning, good evening, and hello, and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the transcontinental film review podcast with me, Dan, cursing all that is holy because I've started back at work in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, cursing Extinction Rebellion for blocking all the major routeways into Cambridge, UK. <laughs> oh, I hate that. In this podcast, we discuss overlooked fantastical films, sci-fi, fantasy and horror, because watching a megalomaniac, visually redundant, sexual predator be engulfed in a fiery blast puts giant grins on our faces. <laughs> Conrad, how are you today? I'm very well. How are you? I'm very well. Um, there's currently a music festival doof doofing in the background that I hope isn't <laughs> being picked up by the microphone, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> there is a music festival near your studio? Well, yes, it seems so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been catching up on some sequels recently. Somebody at oh, yes. work lent me the sequel to Ginger Snaps, which we did a while ago. Ah, yes. How was it? It's not too bad, actually. I mean, the opening titles didn't give me much hope because they were very sort of direct-to-video cheap and silly. But actually, once mm. it got going, the writing is quite interesting. And okay. I was thinking, how are they going to get Ginger into this movie? Because, you know, spoilers, she's kind of dead at the end of the first movie. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. she's there as Bridget's conscience. She's still sort of so much a part of her because of their close relationship that she still sort of talks oh. to her in her mind. So, yeah. I think it works really well. I enjoyed it. Well, I've had a friend visit me in Melbourne mm. who was actually my best man at my wedding. So oh, every yeah. kind of year or two, we catch up somehow because uh, at the moment he lives in Finland. So Oh, wow. A bit of a distance between us. Oh, it must have been great to catch up. Yeah, yeah. Jono's always good fun. <laughs> <laughs> Talking about fun, anything lurking in the mailbag today, Conrad? Yes, actually, I want to devote all of our mailbag segment to one answer that I received on Reddit from a Redditor. Oh, yes. <laughs> Nang Sao Mio Mao. No, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly, but... Mm -hmm. I put a post on Reddit saying I really need help explaining some of the cultural aspects of Shutter. And Nang Sao Mao said, Shutter is one of my favourite horror films. My mother is Thai, so I can speak to some of the customs, although I don't understand all of them. The whole hanging on to a dead body for however long thing is weird, no matter the culture. So <laughs> no help yeah. on that one. But... They say, you're correct about the photo. It would be like revenge porn. So that's where the characters take photos of Net being gang raped. Mm. They say, I always viewed Net as a shy, straight-laced girl. For example, she wears her college uniform skirt long. So it makes sense that the guys assume that the pic would keep her quiet. 
and it also makes Tun an accomplice, so he won't report on them either, which is a good point that I didn't ah, didn't right. notice. Yes. But yes, that points out another cultural fact that I hadn't noticed, which is that in Thai universities, they have uniforms. It may seem weird at first to see adults in the film in uniforms, but they're all college-aged in the flashbacks, and I hadn't even noticed that. I would never wear a uniform in university. No, never. no. So yeah, pretty amazing. And obviously, they used it as a signifier for character because Net wears her skirt very long, so it shows that she's quite reserved. Mm. Whereas uh, some of the other characters have got short skirts, so. Yeah, really interesting right. information. So thank you to Nang Sao Mao for letting us in on all those things. Yeah, thank you. And the only other thing was Serge of Cold Crush Pictures. Hello, Serge. Hey, Serge. <laughs> he mentioned that if anybody is having trouble finding Shutter, he pointed out that it is available on Netflix in the US. So if you would like to watch it, there you will find it. Mm, I mean, that's how I watched it in Australia. It's on Netflix. Ah, no, it isn't here. So I had to hunt down a DVD, but there we go. Mm. <laughs> Speaking of, uh, Conrad, did you want to hunt out the movie that we're doing today? Oh, yes. Let me just pop over to the elevator. Authorization, please. Conrad, authorization, Papa, Oscar, Oscar, Papa. Confirmed. <laughs> Ah, here I am. Well, I can't see anything. I'd better put on my thermal goggles. Oh, yes. Ah, there we are. There's the movie. Back up we go. Oh, you're not God. I am. Well, that Ubli is getting very deep. It is, yes, but at least it has a reassuring female voice coming out of the elevator. And what do you have today, Conrad? So I have Hollow Man, a 2000 science fiction thriller film directed by Paul Verhoeven, starring Kevin Bacon, Elizabeth Shue and Josh Brolin, inspired by H.G. Wells' The Invisible Man and written mm. by Andrew W. Marlowe. Oh, and is this similar to The Invisible Man? Well, it takes the basic idea of somebody being invisible and then going crazy. So, yes, <laughs> quite similar. Although The Invisible Man has been a good character in various different incarnations, like he was a secret agent during the 40s in the war. And in the 70s, David McCallum played him as a secret agent that did good things while he was trying to find a cure for his invisibility, much like the Hulk in the 70s. Mm. But here he is batshit crazy. Right. <laughs> so The Hollow Man stars Kevin Bacon as Sebastian Kane, an arrogant, twinkie-eating scientist working on an invisibility serum for the US military in a high-tech underground bunker with only one elevator. Not that that's mm -hmm. important later. <laughs> Sebastian's crack research team includes his ex-girlfriend, Linda, her secret new squeeze, Matt, and animal-loving vet, Sarah, who oversees all of their cruel, life-threatening experiments on dogs, chimps and gorillas. When the team finally succeeds in reversing the process of making a gorilla invisible, Sebastian decides to skip straight into human testing without telling the authorities and volunteers to become the first invisible man. 
Alas, after many hilarious games of naked Marco Polo, the team discovers they can't bring Sebastian back, and his frustration grows into homicidal rage. His co-workers find themselves in a race against time to escape their underground lab with only one elevator before the mad <laughs> scientist kills everyone who knows of his secret power. Oh, it sounds. <laughs> Exciting! <laughs> Let's check it out. And we are back to talk about Hollow Man, the 2000 horror. I, I guess I would say it was horror sci-fi mm. uh, movie directed by Paul Verhoeven of RoboCop, Basic Instinct, Total Recall. And showgirls fame. <laughs> um, People usually leave that one out. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen this film since I was maybe 17 years old. Mm. I remember when I first watched it, my friend came back from like Thailand or Vietnam or something with, back then DVDs didn't exist yet or weren't as sort of popular. So mm. he had them on a pirated VCD. Oh, wow. I could only <laughs> watch on my computer. And because CDs don't have as much data space, it was split into two CDs that I had to like <laughs> take one out and put the second one in. And that's how I, <laughs> I watched Hollow Man for the first time. <laughs> wow. That reminds me of laser discs where you had to stop and get up and turn them over. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The copy that I, I actually got my hands on for this viewing, mm. I actually found in a junk shop in a tiny little town called Lawrence in the South Island of New Zealand mm. when me and my wife were road tripping around at the start of last year. Oh, um, so cool. thank you to junk shops because they have all of the X rentals from DVD stores and they're very cheap. But which version of the movie have you seen? That's the interesting question ah. because there are two. Are they? There's a director's cut that's seven minutes longer. Yeah. Oh, I'm not sure. Probably the theatrical cut. Yeah. I think for a long time it was only the director's cut that was available on Blu-ray, which is the one that I have. Oh, yes. But recently in the UK, an outlet called 88 Films released both versions of the film along with the direct-to-video sequel Hollow Man 2 starring Christian Slater. So. Oh. <laughs> but I didn't buy that. No. <laughs> it does look bad, possibly. Mm. Who knows? Mm. <laughs> but I did read that um, Paul Verhoeven was credited to start three franchise movies as the first one. So Hollow Man, uh -huh. Robocop, mm -hmm. and Basic Instinct. Apparently there's a sequel to Basic Instinct that I didn't know of. There is, and Sharon Stone <laughs> is in it as well. Bless what? Her. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, Michael Douglas isn't there. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> so we are talking about Hollow Man. Um, what were your sort of initial thoughts of the film? Had you seen it before? I had seen it before, and I had sort of indifferent feelings about it. I just remember it being quite impressive in terms of its fledgling visual effects. Mm. I remember thinking that Kevin Bacon did an amazing job acting in the movie and being the Invisible Man because it was much more of a challenge than I think he expected when he signed on the dotted line. I think in a recent interview he said that he was thinking that he would just be sort of off having a coffee and do some voiceovers at the end of the movie. Sure, <laughs> sure. 
but actually he ends up being in most of the movie wearing a combination of green and black leotards and being digitally removed afterwards. So he was on set all the time, probably in the most uncomfortable outfits ever. Mm. So... Yeah, I just remember it being kind of a breakthrough technologically, but just having this vague feeling that I didn't feel particularly emotionally connected to the movie because the movie was populated by people I just didn't like, really. Ah, right. Sort right. of an ensemble of horrible people. So it's kind of hard to get invested in it. What did you think? I didn't think they were horrible at all. I actually did get invested in them, and oh. I thought they were much better than the throwaway characters you get in slasher films. True. And they weren't insufferable either. I actually thought they were quite endearing and mostly funny. And apart from, yeah, Kevin Bacon's character, Sebastian, like I did like all the characters. Oh. It was funny. When I finished watching the movie, I commented to my wife. I said, oh, yeah, Kevin Kevin Bacon would have just done a whole bunch of voiceovers for that. But yeah, watching some of the behind the scenes, he was in skin tight blue, mm. green, black and grey bodysuits and he had to wear full contact lenses and teeth guards yeah. that were also coloured exactly the same so they could digitally remove it. Yeah. So. I did find the scenes much more authentic because he was in them and they weren't acting to a tennis ball on a stick or something like that, which I do find a lot of the Marvel movies these days, it just doesn't look convincing. The eyes are darting everywhere and it's because they've got no reference point, whereas this... Having the actor in every scene, yeah. oh, it made it so much more enthralling to watch. Yeah, it does. Yeah, that's one of my bugbears as well, is that they obviously give the actors one eyeline reference point and their eyes stay on it while the digital character is moved all over the place and mm. their eyes don't follow it and it just drives me crazy. Yes. Whereas Kevin was there, he was acting with them. And you can tell as well when he's just having a sheet wrapped around his shoulders and that's the only thing you can see, you can see from the physicality of how the sheet is moving and how it's positioned that it's Kevin. He's mm. just unmistakably Kevin Bacon and it adds so much to the scenes where he's invisible for sure. Yeah, and they did such an amazing job in terms of keying him out mm. as well. Like a lot of the scenes I was trying to figure out, is this CGI? Because mm. it looks so tangible. It didn't look like in previous incarnations of The Invisible Man where he's obviously on a green screen mm. and they've just plopped him in but with Kevin in this film it always looks so real mm. and even the use of CGI yes the CGI is very dated now but pretty ambitious CGI mm. and they actually did a pretty good job of within their means of what CGI was at the time yeah definitely no ambitious is the word I wrote down as well because although all of the stuff in terms of when the gorilla and when Sebastian is disappearing mm. you get to see their body disappearing sort of one layer at a time so the skin goes and then you see all the musculature goes and then you're just left with a skeleton and that disappears Mm. I mean, all of that stuff is creating 3D volumetric models of what the insides of these uh, people and creatures would look like. And it's just not detailed and textured enough. It looks kind of plasticky and shiny and cartoony. Mm. But for what it is, it's still very impressive that they went that far. And also the thing that I really like about it is that because it's Paul Verhoeven and he's always been very European and very sexually frank, mm -hmm. it's also anatomical 
anatomically correct. So they scanned every inch of Kevin's body uh -huh. and they represent every inch of Kevin's body. His penis is there mm -hmm. on the musculature model of himself and it's yeah. fully visible throughout the whole thing. Yeah, big glimpse of his dong. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I heard the scan was so detailed. They even scanned his capillaries. Wow. Which is insane. <laughs> <laughs> and kudos to him too. It's a brave thing to do. Oh, so yeah. It speaks a lot of his courage as an actor that he would do that. Mm, it does, it does. You mentioned with Paul Verhoeven how he has sort of a European sensibility. It did not feel like a Hollywood film. I mean, in some respects, yes, but a lot of respects, I felt like it was a lot more voyeuristic than a Hollywood film, and it was a lot more sort of creepy. Mm. Like the way that he was spying on the girls and groping that Sarah character, oh my God, that's disgusting to watch. It made me feel just so gross and dirty. Yeah. Well, we definitely need to talk about the themes of this movie and how it looks today post the Me Too movement. Uh -huh. But yeah, in terms of how Verhoeven is using the camera and how sexually frank it is, how you have Elizabeth Shue's character, Linda, and her relationship with Matt. And in their relationship, she is the sort of alpha half of the relationship. She takes the lead mm. all of the time, even initiates every sexual encounter that they have. It's kind of what you expect from Verhoeven, who's been doing that kind of thing ever since Basic Instinct, really, being really quite challenging in terms of how he depicts and examines and explores sex between adults. Mm -hmm. I think sometimes the sex was a little bit juvenile or the way that he treats sex is a bit juvenile. So that scene in between Linda and Matt, he asks her about how he compares to Sebastian just in terms of being a boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And she, after mounting him, says, you fit better. And I just thought, oh, really? Mm. I'm not sure that two adults would speak to each other this way. It feels much more like a 14-year-old's version of how sure, adults speak sure. to each other. But yeah, it's certainly not what you expect from a mainstream Hollywood movie. Mm, yeah, I mean, I liked it how they didn't hold back with portraying Sebastian as a sexual predator. Like, just because he's invisible didn't mean he became one. He really had sort of pervy inclinations, the way that he spied on his neighbour, undressing. Um, at first, when I was kind of watching it again, I thought, oh, it's what you see in Invisible Man movies. They spy on their neighbours, undressing. Like, I, mm. I remember watching a really bad Invisible Kid movie from the 80s. I think it was called The Invisible Kid. Ah. And it's awful. And obviously he goes into the girls' locker room and he spies on the girls undressing. But they go further with this movie and they portray him as a very nefarious and evil character. Like, it isn't just like, aha, he's spying on girls because he's invisible. He actually goes further and I kind of like the fact that they didn't pass his actions as, oh, he's just playing around. Mm. He's evil. Well, yeah, I don't know. I This is a complicated one. On the one hand, it does go really far in depicting what he does and it establishes him as an alpha male who He's very arrogant, he's very narcissistic, he has a god complex, and his mm -hmm. relationship with Linda, she's his ex-girlfriend, and he still comes on to her all the time, 
he does things that are quite forceful yes. and just unacceptable, really, in the workplace. I mean, certainly post Me Too, the way he behaves in the workplace is not great. And it's established really early on. I mean, the first thing you see him doing in the first scene in the movie is working on his invisibility serum, eating a Twinkie, and then spying on his neighbour as she undresses. So in one scene, you get just how obsessive he is and uh, how reckless he is and also that he is probably not really a very nice guy and objectifies women in a way that's not great. Mm-hmm. And I think it's quite telling that unstable flashes on his computer screen during that first <laughs> scene. But the thing that bothers me about it is whether the filmmakers know that he is as evil and is as bad as he is. Because if you listen to the commentary, the way Paul Verhoeven talks about it, he talks about it as being a tragedy about a great man who is brought down by the effect that invisibility has on his mind. And I'm not convinced that that's true at all. Yeah, I mean, my interpretation of it was a questionable man is exposed for his (laughs) antics as a very evil person. I would never have said, even in that first scene where he's spying on the neighbour, at first I thought, oh, maybe it's one of those scenes that you always see in every Invisible Man movie, but then the way he treats the female co-workers and the very first thing he does when he is invisible is grope his co-worker. Mm. Oh, God awful yeah um, while she's asleep yeah yeah while she's asleep it's terrible i i just thought yeah he's the villain yeah undoubtedly yeah there's no question about there's no gray area it's a hundred percent he's the villain i always get so uncomfortable watching movies like this where you follow the main character and the main character is doing all the things you don't want them to do similar to i recently watched maniac it just makes me feel so uneasy mm. watching the main character who you would normally root for is not Mm. doing savory things at all. And yeah, I think that's what I like about this film. It doesn't hold back and it doesn't paint him in a, oh, he's just a male playing around. He's an evil character. Mm. And his demise at the end was, uh, yeah, very much appreciated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I still think it's problematic, unfortunately, because I don't think the filmmakers know that he is evil from the get-go. I think they think that he is the typical American hero. He's the sort of maverick guy in the convertible, listening to the music, who has the cool life and the cool apartment, and he's confident with women and outgoing. Mm. But listening to the commentary between the director and the writer, when it gets to the rape, because as you say, the first thing he does as an invisible man is molest his co-worker while she's asleep. Mm -hmm. The first thing he does when he gets home after escaping from the laboratory is rape his neighbour. The writer and the director talk about the difference between the theatrical version and the director's cut. In the director's cut, you actually have an additional shot of her being raped. Wow. And you have a third shot of the aftermath of it, of her clutching her dressing gown over her bruised body and sobbing to herself as the camera, still in point of view mode, pulls slowly away from her. And the writer and the director talk about how they had to take those shots out of the theatrical version because they found out that it alienated the audience from the main character. 
Really? Because it pushed it too far because you're kind of along with him and just having fun with it to begin with. And I'm thinking, he molested his co-worker. Yeah. We're not along for the ride on this. Interesting. They actually think that it's the moment when he kills the dog later in the movie that you finally turn on him. And then the POV switches to Elizabeth Shue's character, Linda. Wow. But up until then, it's all been fine. What? <laughs> and that really disturbs me. Yeah. That they think that Kevin Bacon's character is an audience identification figure, even post-rape. I'm not with him right from the very beginning. I think he's an asshole. <laughs> yeah. Oh, for sure. He is completely 100% a douchebag from the get-go. Yeah. Yeah, he's an arrogant prick. Like, I had no no connection to him whatsoever. No. Yeah, that's really interesting that the director said that. Yeah, that they think he's an aspirational figure for American men right up until the point where he rapes somebody. And still then they want to try and soften it a little. So you can voyeuristically, in a first-person shot, enjoy, quote-unquote, the rape, but you can't see the emotional consequences of it. They took that shot out. Mm, okay. I'm worried about what it was that they were trying to achieve with this movie. Uh-huh. Most of the time, what Paul Verhoeven does is he makes American mainstream movies that critique American culture. Yes. So on Robocop, it's a savage critique of capitalism and yuppieism mm-hmm. in the 80s. Sure. Starship Troopers, it's really funny on the commentary for that one because I think right at the get-go, Paul Verhoeven comes on and the producer is there with him who's an American studio guy and Paul Verhoeven says, so this movie is about how the American military is fascist. <laughs> right. <laughs> the producer's like, whoa, <laughs> really? <laughs> and you, But you watch it and they're all wearing Nazi uniforms and just murdering these aliens uh-huh. without a thought and you think, oh, yeah, it is. <laughs> Okay, that's interesting. Yeah. So I was hoping that Hollow Man was like a really ahead of its time skewering of the myth of the powerful man, this hero figure, this sort of great mind who discovers things and gets the girl. Mm -hmm. I thought it was going to be a critique of that. I thought perhaps Paul Verhoeven was doing it again, but you listen to the commentary and he says that it's a Faustian tale. It's a man who sells his soul to the devil. And I think, no, it's not. Mm. It's a person who already is a sexual predator who's given the opportunity to show his true colours and shows us his true colours. Yeah, I mean, that's how I interpreted it as well because I've been watching all these video essays by the YouTuber Pop Culture Detective and he's constantly giving examples of exactly this with Mm. characters that you are supposed to be rooting for. So Harrison Ford characters in Indiana Jones and even when he was in Empire Strikes Back being very forceful sexual predators essentially Mm. on the female leads. Yeah, And I thought that was kind of a critique on that in this and going way too far, crossing the line again and again and again. Yes. Ah, it's a shame. Mm. (laughs) It is, yeah. No, I was thinking of another YouTuber, Lindsay Ellis, who did this fantastic examination of Daenerys Targaryen's behaviour in the last series of Game of Thrones. Sure. And she has this fantastic bit at the beginning where she talks about how most people think of the famous phrase, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely which is kind of what Verhoeven thinks this movie is about. But she says, actually, the truth is what Robert Caro, who is a biographer, he did a biography of Lyndon B. Johnson, Mm -hmm. he said, power doesn't corrupt, it reveals. When someone has the power to do whatever they want to do, you see, 
what they've always wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And that's true. I don't think the invisibility is corrupting Sebastian. This is who he is. Mm. He is a vicious, selfish, narcissistic sexual predator. Mm -hmm. And post Me Too, I think Hollow Man is probably more telling than maybe even the filmmaker realises. Yes. As a depiction of what powerful men can do because they don't have to face the consequences, I think invisibility is a stand-in for wealth and influence. Mm, of really. course, and status, yes. Yes, because people like Harvey Weinstein could get away with what they get away with because of complicity, because people choose not to see them. Mm, yes, exactly. Yeah. So it's <laughs> <some> pretty heavy <laughs> stuff for this. <laughs> There were a few things to do with the laws of invisibility with this movie that Mm. weren't really established. How does that work? Is it just his body that's invisible? Mm -hmm. Anything that's inside his body as well? Because there's that scene where he's vomiting nothing. Yes. So you can't see any invisible vomit. Does that mean when he eats the food immediately becomes invisible as soon as he swallows. Uh, I, I wasn't sure. Also, why weren't they wearing the infrared goggles all the time? Like, every second. I know, I would. They were just kept taking them off, and I was just getting really angry. Like, just leave them on. It's the only way you can see him. Why are you taking it off? But, yeah, I did find some of the sort of plot points a little bit idiotic. Mm. They weren't doing the things that they should be doing. No. Yeah, the rules of the invisibility are a little bit unclear. I remember in another early computer graphic attempt to do The Invisible Man, Memoirs of an Invisible Man Ah, by John Carpenter. I haven't seen that. Yeah, that uses sort of similar techniques to make Chevy Chase disappear. And there are scenes in that where he eats something and then he looks in a mirror and he can actually see the food going down into his stomach and Uh sort of sloshing around. So he's immediately violently sick. Uh-huh. So I think for the rest of that movie, he eats jello or something. <laughs> right. So I'm not sure what's happening in this movie. I think the idea is that as soon as he eats something, it's sort of absorbed into his dimension. I don't know. Yeah. It's not clear. Because they were trying to explain that invisibility was achieved by some sort of phase shift. Mm. So it was phasing out of our visible reality, I guess. Yeah. But it was, yeah, it was very glazed over and not really talked about. Yeah, there are all sorts of problems with how can he see then because would his eyes react to normal light in our dimension anymore? So they really shouldn't be able to hear him or, and he shouldn't be able to see anything either. So it's, it's just... <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> It's like time travel movies. Once you unpack it, it doesn't make any sense. It it's... starts to fall apart, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did like it that they did talk about the fact that he couldn't close his eyes because his eyelids were transparent. Yeah. I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah, <laughs> it is a nice touch, yeah. But uh, in terms of story structure, I thought you have a really great setup. I think all the stuff where you're watching them do the experiments, the scenes where they're making people go invisible and coming back really well mounted and exciting mm-hmm. then you have the second act where it got stuck in a loop of sebastian doing something appalling and everyone rushing to see whether he's asleep in his bed or not <laughs> and then in the third act it just shifts into a horror movie and they basically just turn into alien he's just a sexual predator who's trying to kill them in the laboratory and they're tracking him on a screen so you have the whole tracking scene 
scene from Alien. Then you have the scene where the tough female character is locked inside a room and after trying desperately to break the thick plastic window, she finds an inventive way of escaping, (laughs) which is Aliens. So it just becomes scene after scene after scene of bog standard everything you've seen before Uh until it just stops. Right, right. I would have to disagree. I actually loved all that stuff. I loved the bog standard horror movie Alien ripoff. I thought the, yeah, definitely the incitement and suspense really ramped up. And I think it, maybe it's a similar thing to how I thought about Sunshine, what I think about Event Horizon, and even in The Vanishing where it's a thriller and then suddenly it's the horror at the end, like a real cliche yeah, horror. Slasher movie. I don't know. I love that stuff. I, I love when a movie is a particular genre and then it just switches it up and suddenly it's a horror I think it's mm. I find it very exciting <laughs> yeah I mean, and it's very well executed all of those sequences I mean particularly we'll probably talk about this some more but Jerry's music the man is thundering away on his odd metered action material full orchestral might yes. and drums and synths and it's it's just amazing stuff it's beautifully shot and staged the fighting is all really great but very little of it makes a great deal of sense. So I have some questions for Uh you. Yes, fire away. (laughs) How can a heating vent produce a thermal image that looks exactly like Kevin Bacon hiding behind a pipe? (laughs) I didn't understand that at all. Because it is Kevin Bacon stood there and then Matt goes around the corner with his thermal goggles on and it turns out to be just a heating vent. And I thought... What? <laughs> no, I was convinced by that. I, I, I thought, wow, that's so smart. Yes, heating vents, of course, of course. <laughs> no, I, I threw away all of my sort of rational thinking and I believed in that. I thought that was really clever. Oh, but what about why does Sebastian spend so much time waiting around while Sarah opens packet after packet of blood and sprays it over the floor to try and see where he is when he could have just killed her? Her, especially given he was standing behind <laughs> her the whole time. And then he says something so she knows where he is. He should just keep quiet. It's, oh, I just thought it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just one of those scenes where it's just for suspense and also visually striking, yeah. blood all over the floor. Looks pretty cool. It is. Uh, and yeah. also when, when she does splash him with blood as well, that's... Yeah, he looks terrifying. Yeah, that is a yeah shocking effect. It, it is good. Holy crap! And that the whole bloody floor sequence is great. But when you stop and think about it, it's he should just kill her straight away. There's no point to this at all, unless. I suppose unless he enjoys tormenting people, that could be true. Yeah, I mean, I do feel like he did enjoy tormenting, but also, yeah, slasher film. Yeah. It was a slasher film. So you you need the one-by-one deaths, you need them to be innovative in every way and and unique. Uh, So (laughs) that's my excuse. (laughs) And, of course, the laboratory has to explode at the end even though I can't figure out why they can't just unplug the blood mixing machine that's got the nitroglycerin in. Elizabeth Shue says, we've got to stop this. And Josh Brolin's character, Matt, just says, no, we can't. Yeah. <laughs> and I just think, why not? It's got a plug on it. Just turn the damn thing off. Yeah. It's ridiculous. It's just, again, it's one of those excuses where I think uh, I hate everything says this. Uh, it happened because movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stupid. Mm. 
I do feel like in more recent times with horror, there seems to be a lot more rational thinking imbued in characters now. Yeah. I'm constantly watching horrors where they actually do exactly what I think they should be doing. Yeah. Whereas, yeah, 90s and early 2000s horror, constantly just stupid decisions <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and irrational thought. And that is a horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I did really enjoy this film, but there were a lot of things because of its time that I just had problems with. Mm. So for starters, everyone looks like they're from the set of Beverly Hills 90210. Yeah. They look like models <laughs> and they're all dressed in clothes that were just made. <laughs> and everyone looks super clean. Yeah. I don't know what it is with 90s movies, early 2000s. <laughs> everyone looks so clean. Not a sp- of dust on them, not a blemish on their face. No, it's true. <laughs> I don't know. They just look so polished. It's like they've buffed their faces. <laughs> and also the lab as well, just the most unconvincing science lab. Everything's either stainless steel, glass, or concrete. Mm. And they, yeah, they should have locked up Sebastian. Mm. From the first indiscretion, they should have locked him in that room. Yeah. It would have made much more sense. Yeah, they really should have done. And then at the end of the movie, after they electrocute him, and he's now visible because parts of him are in phase and he's quite grotesque because he's just this sort of muscular, skeletal figure on the floor. Mm-hmm. At that point, you should either tie him up or beat him <laughs> senseless. Yeah. You shouldn't just leave him there. I know. So that he can attack them again. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. But that's... Oh, it's so groan-worthy. It's so horror movie, though. That is 90s horror movie to a T. It really they is. always yeah. leave the killer just free to roam Mm. to do whatever he or she pleases I do find it funny with a lot of horror movies now they just shoot them yeah just point blank (laughs) gotta make sure they're dead yeah exactly no I love that that originates in Wes Craven's scream doesn't it I think Nev Campbell just shoots the guy in the head just straight away yes (laughs) fuck that (laughs) now it's time for random trivia so, Dan, what fascinating piece of trivia have you discovered groping around with your thermal goggles on today? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> did you know, Conrad, that the producers of uh, this film, Hollow Man, had to buy the rights to Dan Simmons' 1992 novel, The Hollow Man, oh. so that they could still call this film Hollow Man? Oh, and is it completely unrelated? It's completely <laughs> unrelated, has nothing to do with invisibility. I think it's about a guy that has psychic powers or something. Oh, <laughs> it's okay. completely unrelated. They had to have that title, so had to buy those rights. Oh. So I had a fun piece of trivia too. <laughs> so Hollow Man was embroiled in a scandal with Sony Pictures, whereby they discovered that some of the quotes that were on the poster for lots of Columbia Pictures releases that Sony were were marketing at the time, the, the film critic... David Manning, who was saying, amazing movie and another winner and all this kind of thing. They were fake. No. They were fake reviews. Wow. David Manning did not exist. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. 
So they, somebody took out a lawsuit against them for improper business practices, and uh -huh. they settled. And they had to give a refund of five dollars to every dissatisfied customer who saw Hollow Man, the Animal, the Patriot, A Knight's Tale, or Vertical Limit. No way. There you go. Crazy. So yeah, fascinating. I wonder how many studios have gotten away with doing exactly this. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Scandalous, yeah. Fake reviews. Oh. And that's our trivia. I think there's one aspect of it that I think does hamper it somewhat, which is that all of the shots that involve invisibility effects were filmed on a motion control camera. Uh-huh, sure. So, whereas now, whenever they do something where they're painting people out, they just film anything and then they use computer tracking to track the camera in the computer and then they can match where the computer element should be on the screen as the camera moves around oh. in 3D space. Back then, that wasn't possible. So the way they did it was they would rehearse the scene, figure out where the camera was going to go in terms of position, focus, everything else. Yeah. And then they would get a computer to record everything the camera did. And then they would have to replay the scene again and then film the scene again with nobody there just to get the background so that they could paint bits out that they wanted ah. to paint out. And so I think that means that the film just doesn't feel quite as free. I did notice that, yes. Or dynamic, yeah. as it could have been. It feels, for Verhoeven, very controlled. Yes, I mean, that was probably my biggest gripe of the film. It didn't feel as sort of gritty mm. as some of his other films. And also because everyone looked like they just had a shower and <laughs> put on clean clothes. Um, yeah. But yeah, the film was almost like too well lit, I found. Mm. I almost wanted it to have more of an 80s approach to it, having more sort of shadow and mm. sweetiness, I guess. Everyone looked just <laughs> yeah. too dry and well lit. It's a very polished and controlled movie, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I did read somewhere that Verhoeven said that he's not actually happy with this film. Out of all the ah, films that he's made, really? he wasn't happy with how it turned out. So maybe he, maybe there were lots of studio interference, who knows. Yeah. We have mentioned quite a few effects already, but the effect of... Okay, so they pour latex over him. Yeah. Uh, I guess this is their way of making him look somewhat human, yeah. but also much, much more horrifying. <laughs> they should have just covered him in bandages like the original Invisible Man. That's much better. Mm. But no, latex. So he's this rubbery man with no eyes. He <laughs> yeah. cut out his eyes, so it's just... Two holes into a hollow man, as <laughs> yeah, he was. Um, of course. <laughs> but that effect was so well done mm. of being able to see into the cavity of his kind of latex skin. I thought it was so well done. There were so many scenes of the effects of an invisible body in a scene that was mm. oh, so cool, like how he would, you could see imprints on chairs and mm. every time he engaged with some sort of liquid or gas, I love that sort of imprint of his body. Yeah. So many innovative effects to convey his invisibility. 
capability. Yeah, and all so groundbreaking because they hadn't done an awful lot of that stuff before. And so much of it involved Kevin Bacon really going for it, like the swimming pool murder of William Devane's character, the colonel, the military guy that he needs to kill because he knows uh-huh. that he's invisible. So, And that scene, they did talk about using a stunt person, but the trouble was the physicality of the stunt person would just so obviously not be Kevin. Right. So it ends up being Kevin dressed in black in a swimming pool, yeah. battling with William Devane so that they can then take him out and just leave this empty hole in the water and all of the bubbles and the movement will read as Kevin's physicality. It's all really good, all of that stuff. It's amazing. I can't think of anything where somebody has done it better. I'm interested to see what Lee Wanell does with this concept. Sure. I think in his new movie, which is coming out soon, it's again very much a woman being not believed and being preyed upon by a malevolent man. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really going for the horror angle again. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, I don't think I've seen mm. effects like that done as well. And it's not even the CGI effects, it's just the keying out of Kevin Bacon. Mm. They did a really, really good job. They did, yeah. It's quite impressive. And creating CGI replacements for things like the back of the inside of his latex mask. Uh So it's a 3D element that moves with him so that you can see inside there and you can see the back. And Mm. things like where he turns sideways and you can see through both of his eye holes and you can see all the way to the background behind him. Mm, Yeah, mm. and they use it really well. Like, they will have lights behind him so that you can see this glow inside the mask sometimes when he's thinking about something or they use shadow across his face sometimes when he's being particularly evil. Yeah, it's very well done and very well Mm. conceived how they visualise all of that stuff. Yeah, my wife Hannah actually did notice one fault. Ah. It's when Sebastian is singing. So he's got the latex mask on He's in his car. He's singing along to some music. And for like a split second, you can see his tongue, which you shouldn't be able to see. Ah, <laughs> interesting. I will have to do a freeze frame on that to see if I can spot that. Yeah. Yeah, we rewound it and you definitely can see his tongue because he did wear like teeth sort of mouth guard mm. to hide his teeth. But I guess you can't really hide your tongue. No. Uh, so, yeah. Unless he like <laughs> sucks on green jawbreaker right before every take. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it's time to talk about your favorite composer uh, who did the music to this film, yeah. Jerry Goldsmith. What were your thoughts? Well, the guy was just a genius and (laughs) he'd worked with Verhoeven a few times before. And the interesting thing about their relationship is Paul Verhoeven really challenged Jerry. So the first time they worked together was Basic Instinct, which was 92 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And Jerry at this point was sort of flying high. He'd been huge in the 70s, 80s. And I get the sense that people didn't really challenge him anymore. They were just so thrilled to get him on their picture that they didn't really challenge him. Whereas Paul Verhoeven, when he said to him, "Okay, your main theme for Basic Instinct needs to be sexy, mysterious, threatening Uh and exciting all in one go. Give it to me. Mm -hmm. And I think he worked on dozens and dozens and dozens of themes for that movie because Paul Verhoeven would just keep saying to him, that's not it. You can do better. And Jerry says on the commentary for Hollow Man, 
which is one of the only two commentaries he ever recorded during the DVD commentary era, that he thinks that Basic Instinct is one of the best things that he's ever done. Mm, so, right. I mean, they worked together on Basic Instinct and Total Recall, which is just a powerhouse of action scoring from start to finish, set them up for this. And then this is, I think, their last collaboration because uh, Jerry sadly died a few years later. Mm. And this one is great. It's got a theme that is very basic instincty. Okay. There's these sort of bird calls as well that are very similar to The Vanishing that we did. Oh. And his action music is that sort of odd metered, incredibly propulsive and exciting inventive orchestration involving synths. It just goes like gangbusters all the way through and it really heightens every scene that it's in. Even though you're locked in these tiny spaces, it gives it much more of an epic and exciting sound that it possibly deserves. Yeah. One thing I would say is it does just kind of sound like a remix of things that he's done before. It doesn't sound terribly original. Oh, what did okay. you think? I loved it. It's so sort of rare these days to watch a film where you walk out of it humming the theme. Mm -hmm. And I was definitely humming the theme to this film. Yes. It's so iconic and so memorable and it just... It's drenched throughout the entire film, so you really, mm. you almost feel that sort of motif. It's great. And the use of very subtle synths as well was mm. great. Very, very ingenious. And, yeah, the action music was, I guess, because it's been so done, yeah. it did seem a bit generic. Like, he just sounded like he was pounding on a piano with a sledgehammer or something. Yeah. <laughs> oh, his left-hand piano writing was always one of his fortes. <laughs> Quite literally, sure. he really would <laughs> hammer the shit out of that thing. He's done that ever since Capricorn 1. Ah. And it's... I love listening to all that stuff because there's a 10-minute cue that's called Bloody Floor on the soundtrack album that's just ah. 10 minutes of so inventive, dynamic, changing, developing, storytelling action music. It's not just the same ostinato repeated over and over again for five minutes like Hans Zimmer would do. Mm. It's telling a story, it's active, it's changing, there's highs, there's lows, there's pauses and accelerates towards a finale. There's a scene where the elevator car starts falling towards them mm -hmm. and Jerry does such a sort of obvious Mickey Mousing thing, but it's so good. He has all the strings and the synthesizer just plummeting from the highest notes that they can reach. Yeah. And it's so exciting. Yeah. It's great. It's almost like a sound effect. It's such good stuff. Mm, mm, it's mm. obvious it's been done before, it's been done since maybe, but he's so active in creating the atmosphere of the movie. Yes. I just love him for it. Yes. And the fact that the final act is essentially a horror, he doesn't do it in a very cliche horror way musically. Mm. A lot of the jump scares aren't really jump scares and they're often very unique as well. Each each sting is completely different. Mm. And it just, yeah, like you said, it creates this overwhelming atmosphere that you can't shake that is uh, sort of imbued in the sort of themes and, and the action that's on screen. Yeah. Jerry was the greatest. <laughs> I still think he's very difficult to beat on things like this. But 
it has to be said, it does kind of feel like a remix of Basic Instinct and Total Recall. You could argue this is not top draw Verhoeven. I don't think it's top draw Jerry either, but even middling Jerry Goldsmith is pretty astounding. Yes, 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 yes. I think you'll probably be shocked, but I have not seen Basic Instinct. <gasps> so I, I feel like I'm still dipping my toes into Jerry Goldsmith and Verhoeven. So mm. for me... The score is great. Yeah. Well, there's better to come. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta pop that basic instinct, Cherry. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. It's everyone's nefariously entertaining part of the podcast, where we grasp at our favourite potentially harmful moments of the film in a series of invisibly murderous categories. Best quote! It's probably an obvious choice, but I would go for the quote where Sebastian says, It's amazing what you can do when you don't have to look at yourself in the mirror anymore. Mmm, yeah. Evil, Mm. evil. Evil. (laughs) What about you? You just expect him to have a maniacal laugh after it. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Kevin plays it very much, uh, yeah, more uh, grounded than that. Yes. (laughs) It's not twirling his invisible (laughs) moustache. Uh, my favourite quote is also from um, Sebastian. Uh, it's uh, in that scene where the Frank character is on like a, a floor above and he's got a microphone and he's he's kind of joking around pretending he's God. And then Se- Sebastian replies, mm. you're not God, I am. And then obviously the God complex. And then later on <laughs> when Sebastian and Linda are having the altercation in the final scene and they're on the elevator... And she releases the cable from the elevator and he plummets. And then she says, go to hell. So, yeah, a lot of (laughs) God imagery there. Love it. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he's not God anymore. I think Matt says that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Most naughty moment. For me, the most naughtiest thing about this film is the decor in Lynn's apartment which looks like a battle of the beiges and pinks. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's just Your favorite. loads of salmons and soft furnishings. And she even has a rug pinned to the wall behind her bed, which feels like every student residence mm. <laughs> in, in the <laughs> 90s and the 2000s. And also, also clean and so polished when these guys were workaholics. So I don't know how they kept their apartments like that, but hey. Yeah, I, I was actually quite impressed with how they set up uh, Sebastian's apartment. Was, he just mm. had lots of bookshelves with thousands of books and it looked like a natural apartment. And the great thing about that set is that they built a complete set, including the neighbour that he can see through the window. Oh. And the distance between that apartment and his neighbour's apartment is the same as the distance between the apartments in Hitchcock's rear window. Oh. And they did that deliberately. Ah. Yeah. Very nice touch. Yeah. Uh, in terms of my most naughties part of the film, the webcam that they use, that sort of <laughs> spherical <laughs> camera that would sit on this little kind of tripod thing on top of your computer, but very inaccurate 
portrayal of video conferencing uh, for the year 2000. I mean, that video quality would never have existed back then. No. It would have been a big <laughs> pixelated mess that kept kind of stuttering and oh, the lag would have been awful. Yeah, it would have been. And actually, that's the reason why it looks so good because they did try to hardwire up those two screens between the, the two sets. Between oh, yeah. Linda's apartment and uh, Kevin's apartment, but it didn't work. The lag was so bad, and yeah, yeah they couldn't do the scenes. So dial up, it's fake. Yeah, <laughs> it's like HD. It's incredible. Yeah, <laughs> it's like zooming in on on the background. It's that's not <laughs> accurate. <laughs> no, it's not. Best hair or costume. So this is Verhoeven's alternate universe where bras don't exist. That's the thing I noticed about uh -huh. all of the costumes. All of these military research scientists go to work in a blouse with buttons on or a tiny thin sweater that's a crop top that shows their midriff and no bra. So <laughs> this is pretty discriminatory because anybody who's over the age of 35 for whom gravity has taken its toll or who hasn't got a plastic surgeon, they're really not going to fit in in this research team, are they? <laughs> no. <laughs> Like I said, straight from Beverly Hills 90210. Yeah, it is. It's ridiculous. And it's a, it's a little bit sexist, I think. But mm. I did find this film was unmistakably early 2000s slash late 90s in terms of mm. hairstyles. Wow. <laughs> uh, it's, it's like they just told Elizabeth Shue, we need to make her look exactly like Meg Ryan. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Good call. The hairsprayed, kind of short, curly bob thing. Holy crap, that was the hairstyle to have, uh, especially by Meg Ryan. Yeah. Favourite scene? Of course, you're not going to agree with me, but I love the last scene. The last big third mm. act where it turned into a bog standard horror film. Loved it. <laughs> yeah, all the sort of unique ways that people were dying, as Jeff would say, mm. each kill was very innovative. I loved how they conveyed his invisibility, how they used different techniques to try to see him because obviously the infrared goggles weren't working. <laughs> so using a fire extinguisher and the sprinklers and throwing blood on the floor why not yes why not do mm. that um, <laughs> and i was in for a ride to the very end uh, well it's funny that you should mention jeff palermo from sci-fi on screen because i heard his voice very distinctly in my head when they went for the bog standard neck snap on sarah oh, for yeah. that kill yeah. i thought oh it's the cheapest, easiest kill ever. <laughs> I could hear him groaning in my head. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? Favourite scene? My favourite scene is probably Sebastian's disappearance scene. I just love all of those sequences with the experiments. But his is particularly exciting because Kevin does such a good job of conveying how unusually nervous his character is and how painful the process is and all of the effects and all of the camera work and Jerry's score for that sequence which starts off with this sort of pizzicato plucking and slowly builds into this 
massive orchestral tour de force. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just love all of those experiment scenes, but Sebastian's disappearance is the best by far. I loved how they portrayed going invisible as well as being a very painful and sort of gruesome mm. experience. They didn't paint it in this magical way. It was it was an ordeal, which was, yeah, mm. very appropriate for, for the sort of tone of the film as well. It's pretty exciting stuff. Most cliched horror moment. The dog gets it first. <laughs> Poor dog. <laughs> And it's really brutal too. They only get away with it by using an invisible dog and using thermal imaging so that you uh -huh. can't really see it properly. But still, just the way he rams that fake dog's body yeah. into the cell. And, it, and on the director's cut, he slams it backwards and forwards three times and there's blood flying everywhere. Mm. And it's yelping noises and oh, it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> what about you? <laughs> they definitely drove it home. My nomination for cliche in this movie would be the last scare. So horror movies always have that last scare. You think you're safe, but you're not. <laughs> so Linda and Matt, they have left Sebastian lying unconscious on the floor after being electrocuted, and they are escaping through the elevator shaft. Mm. And as they are climbing up the ladder, suddenly a grotesque hand reaches out and grabs Linda's foot. Oh, Every time, horror movies got to have that last big mm. terrifying moment. But I know it's coming every time. It doesn't make any sense at all because the lab at that point is like a pool of fire <laughs> at the bottom yeah. of the elevator shaft. There's yes. no way he could have survived it for so long, but somehow he just comes out of there. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite special effect. I've already mentioned how I love how they conveyed invisibility and yeah I all those effects with liquid and gas mm. and they don't even though it is CGI it doesn't really date I still think it's it's pretty impressive mm. my favorite out of all of those was when he's washing his face and he just splashes water on his face and you see him in the mirror and it's just this kind of ghostly liquid face oh it's so cool love it yeah some of the scary stuff they do is pretty cool i mean my favorite is actually a very simple subtle moment which is when linda is in her apartment and she's worried that he might be there so she grabs a sheet off of her bed and just sort of flings it across the room and very very briefly you just see a, a head just sort of poking through the sheet and then it's gone and you're not oh. sure whether you've imagined it or whether he's there and it's really freaky because it's so subtle a similar effect turns up in the conjuring actually years later yeah, but, uh, yeah. that's much more overt in that case yeah sure yeah that one i just thought oh that's so subtle mm, mm, mm. but it's really creepy <laughs> Ghost sound effect! My favourite sound effect is the whistling noise that comes from the plastic tube that's in Sebastian's mouth when they're pouring the latex over his face. Oh, <laughs> <Because> right, okay. <laughs> it's just a tiny little detail, but it just made me giggle just to hear him sort of whistling away whilst they're slathering this stuff all over him. Yeah. I thought it just really sold me on the whole thing. I thought it made it much more convincing. Ah, no. My favourite effect, it's not even really an effect, it's just what sound that thing made. So, mm -hmm. they've got old computers, they also have 
old computer keyboards. So those sort of real clunky 80s slash 90s keyboards that make a really distinctive <laughs> chunk, chunk, chunk sound when you type a key. Oh, I love it. Brought back uh, memories from my childhood. <laughs> yeah, I love those too. We have somebody at work at the university who still has a keyboard from that era plugged into his sleek, modern, really? <laughs> cutting-edge PC just so he can have that noise. And he's got like a pile of them in the corner that he's just slowly oh, going through wow. as they die. He must have bought like a crate of them. Wow. <laughs> Most funniest scene. I didn't find the movie that funny. I think it's terribly serious. I guess I did chuckle slightly at the scene where Sebastian is arguing with Sarah and he says something about how is it that whenever you say yes sir it always sounds like fuck you and her reply is practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I love how snarky her character was. She was great. Yeah. <laughs> I did find one scene that was not supposed to be funny. So Sebastian, uh, in his invisible manic rage, has just dealt with the Carter character. Oh, yeah. So Linda and Frank discover Carter's body and he's just profusely bleeding all over the floor. And then Frank says, he'll be okay, which is... (laughs) (laughs) Are you blind? (laughs) What are you looking at? (laughs) Yeah, he does not look great, Frank. No. I guess that's our movie awards. It is. Final verdict time! Should Hollow Man be released from its underground stainless steel lab <laughs> to be enjoyed by all lurking silently in your bedroom? Or should it be burnt with a DIY flamethrower, electrocuted and dropped into the fiery pit that is the <laughs> oobly it to be lost forever? Ooh. Conrad, final thoughts? Well, revisiting Hollow Man, I have to say, although it's a very slickly produced film, its CGI holds up very well in retrospect. I have very deep concerns about what the filmmakers think the movie is about compared with what it appears to be when you watch it from the perspective of a mm-hmm. post-Me Too movement world. The thing that re- I really struggled with is I'm not sure who the protagonist is. I, I'm not sure I like any of the characters. They all seem pretty hostile and antagonistic towards each other. There's a moment in the control room, actually, I meant to mention, where they're talking about, oh, what should we do if he dies? And one of the technicians says, I want his Porsche. And Frank says, Mm. how could you be like that? The Porsche is mine. Yeah, They're all awful, awful people, really. (laughs) My final thought is that it's just not a very good movie. It's a good first act. The science is exciting. It's very well done. The second act gets stuck in a loop with him. Did he do something? Oh, no. Is he in the bed? And then the third act just devolves mm-hmm. into a ripoff of Alien in an underground lab that explodes at the end. And although I was sort of whisked along with it, I don't think I would recommend it. I think if you compare it to everything else that Verhoeven has done, there's a reason why this one is in the oubliette. And 
I do think it should stay there. There's something interesting to say about it in terms of how it depicts what white men in power will do if they are given the opportunity to do whatever they want. And I think that's worth talking about. And I think we've enjoyed talking about it today. But as a film to watch uh -huh. for entertainment purposes, it didn't quite do it for me. What about you? Mm, well... Of course, I'm going to disagree with everything you said. <laughs> I, I've, I will probably have to disregard um, the director and the writer's sort of original intent because mm. I, I feel like I interpreted it in a different way that was much more impactful. Uh, yeah. I think the effects are extraordinary and what they achieved in the time was just mind-blowing and a lot of the green screen and uh blue screen king effects holy crap that's amazing work there i was very i was just blown away mm. and i really liked as much as i feel very uneasy following a villain as a protagonist or antagonist i guess yeah i i thought kevin bacon did it really well i really hated his character yeah <laughs> and i think that was the point mm. and i do think it has its sort of dated downfalls it does look straight from the late 90s slash early 2000s <laughs> everyone looks ultra clean uh, and polished and the most unconvincing science lab ever <laughs> and like you said why is there only one entrance and exit to this uh, <laughs> death trap i don't know but yeah i enjoyed this film and i actually felt like i enjoyed it more watching it sort of older and more matured mm. i liked the horror angle to invisibility i thought that was really cool and yeah i would recommend this i would set the three <gasps> i would oh well you know what this means <laughs> it's time for the kind of fate so do you want heads or tails Oh, I guess I'll go for heads. Okay, here goes. Because he has a hollow head. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here goes. What's it going to be? Yes, it's Tails. No. Yay. It cannot be. <laughs> <laughs> I call for a reflip. <laughs> So Hollow Man gets flamethrowed and thrown back down that one single elevator oh. shaft. Pretend my last words were deep and clever. Bye bye. <laughs> so that's our second film to be thrown back into the oubliette this year. What's up next, Conrad? So for our next episode, we thought we would do a listener's choice episode. So we put a bunch of film titles onto the oubliette roulette. Oubliette roulette. Uh, we've been doing a lot of horror recently, so the Oubliette Roulette, I peppered it with science fiction movies. So we had The Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai Across the Eighth Dimension, uh -huh. Weird Science, Howard the Duck, Hardware, Soldier, Undead, aka Nightbreakers, The Invisible, and next. Oh. So we let our patrons vote on all of those titles. If you'd like the opportunity to vote on these, then head on over to Patreon. For as little as a dollar, you can participate in this, or for $5, you can get loads of bonus extra content. But they've been voting, they have chosen. Yes. Let's spin that wheel and find out what they came up with. Okay, here we go. Cool. Go around. <laughs> Ooh. What will it be? 
And it's Howard the Duck. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yes, that rather famous flop from 1986, a science fiction comedy film directed by Willard Hyuk and starring Leah Thompson of Back to the Future fame, Jeffrey Jones, and none other than Tim Robbins from The Shawshank Redemption, Whoa, produced okay. by George Lucas. Wow. <laughs> this is a Marvel film, isn't it? Yeah, early Marvel entry. So, yeah, should be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I can't wait. And if you want to be further entertained by our podcast, keep up to date with our future episodes. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram as Movie Oubliette. Yes, and if you'd like to email us, we're at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. We always like to hear your opinions on the films that we've been speaking about and ideas for films we could cover in the future. Yes, and of course, please give us a rating and a review on whatever platform you're using. Yes really helps us out if you're enjoying the show let everyone know everyone everybody you meet just strangers on the street <laughs> just stop them and tell them yes <laughs> thanks for joining us everyone yep it's been great stay tuned next time bye for now bye if this is a snuff film, I got dibs on his Porsche.